HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curtain, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby, my co-host and producer of Sophie Schlesinger. Hello. And in the booth doing all the fancy technology stuff, we have Jack Inslee and Carlos Salguaro. So thank you guys very much. Yes, thank you. Um, so today is, this is Sophie's favorite it's show. It's a very exciting day for me because I just love butter and we're going to do a show all about butter and all the crazy <laughs> things that are happening. Basically this show, the, the idea for the show came out of the fact that we've just been hearing and experiencing some crazy, I don't want to call it phenomenon cause that's a little extreme, but some, some, uh, very entertaining and fascinating stories about butter, butter news. Yeah. Yes. Domestic and abroad. So we're going to tackle it. We're going to, so we're going to do a quick little roundup to start and then we're going to have three fantastic butter guests. Um, yes. our first guest is going to be Jim Victor, who is a, uh, an artist and a butter sculptor who just came completed a huge butter sculpture at the Pennsylvania Farm Fair. Our second guest will be Harold McGee, who is just an amazing guy all around. The and coolest person ever. The coolest person ever <laughs> and author of The Essential Tome on Food and Cooking. Yep. And then our third guest is going to be Diane St. Clair, who is a farmer and butter maker in Vermont, um, who sells butter um, exclusively to Thomas Keller uh, for his restaurants, uh, The French Laundry and Per Se. So um, before we get into the guests, Sophie, uh, Tell us what's going on with butter in the world. So a quick update from Norway, because I don't think we've ever mentioned Norway on the show. But basically, right around Christmas time, they had an extreme butter shortage throughout the entire country. You know, about a week before Christmas, everyone's getting ready to make their Christmas cookies. And there was literally no butter. Tragedy. Yeah, like really, really bad. And basically what they were chalking it up to was two two main things one kind of a return to a lot of home cooking and baking and then two this 
increase popularity in a low carb, high fat diet, which is kind of wild that it would sweep through the country, you know, at such a rate that it would cause this severe shortage. And, and it really resulted to some crazy things. People were smuggling butter. People were selling it to, I think, 40 times per pound. They were the, auctioning the it off online. Yeah, they're auctioning off online. And then, of course, you know, people are like, hey, we can make our own butter, which is which is a, de- a definite alternative. Um, but yeah, pretty, pretty wild. You can find stories about this on, on CNN on the Wall Street Journal, kind of all over just a Google Norway butter shortage. I love it that Denmark got in the, they really got into it and they started selling butter immediately at their duty-free shops, yeah, at the ferries smart. and, uh, <laughs> and airports. Smart. They're like, hey, we've got plenty of butter over here. Yeah. Um, well, and butter, of course, you know, is has been a pretty popular food with humans uh, pretty much since the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in the middle of going through um, a great book that's going to be published this uh, April, and um, butter has figured significantly in um, you know in our food and culture since you know Sumerian times. Um, they would always offer uh, up butter and cheese as a as a sacrifice to the gods. So even since then, you know, uh, butter has been has consistently been important. Um, and then the other uh, news bit that we had is um, sadly this summer uh, um, one of the country's greatest butter sculptors um, passed away. Her name is Norma Lyon. Mm-hmm. She's working uh, from Iowa. And uh, and she also has, because she had an apprentice kind of working with her, um, who's now kind of taken over her role. But she was, I, th- I think, one of the, the most prominent butter sculptors in the country. So, um, but, uh, so we're going to be talking with another prominent butter sculptor yes. from this country. Um, Jim, are you are you with us on the line? Yes, I am. I'm here. Thank you so um, much for being yeah. on the show. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, about your work and how you got into sculpting with butter? Yeah, um, it's kind of a crazy story, but uh, what happened was this. I'm a sculptor, and I was trained as a fine artist, and that I was trained at Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, and I was trained in, in figure sculpture and was doing figure sculpture for many years. And, of course, artists are always looking for jobs. And uh, what happened was <clears throat> there was a an ad that was put in the paper in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, advertising for a butter sculptor. My brother saw the ad because he lives in Harrisburg, and he called me and he said, you know, you might be interested in this. <laughs> so I applied for the job, and I got it. And... Uh, I got it on the basis of what I had done before in chocolate. Hmm. I had done some chocolate sculptures uh, of Mickey Rooney and Ann Miller for Sugar Babies. It was a Broadway show, and <laughs> and it was like, an, you know, and then there was a bunch of chocolate sculptures I had done. So on the basis of doing work in chocolate, they hired me to do butter. That's that amazing. Was that was the beginning. <laughs> and yeah. your sculpture is really, really fantastic. We were just looking through a few photos right before the show, and we're, we'll... Uh, Jack, well, Jack's going to post one on um, on our show page on HeritageRadioNetwork.com so you all can take a look. But they're really not even sculpture. It's like an entire portrait or like mini it's a scene. Yeah. How did yeah. you make the stalks of corn out of butter? The corn was amazing to me. Or the, the um, one of the sculptures was Life on the Farm. And there was um, some sort of plant, which I thought was corn, but maybe isn't. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. There, there was a cornfield I did one time. Yeah. Well, uh, I think, you know, you can really make sculptures of anything. Um, they're all supported by steel, 
because the butter won't hold itself up. Right. So I've got to make armatures for everything, and the armatures are made out of steel. And um, so when I did that cornfield, I had a lot of, you know, heavy wire, uh, probably uh, light rebar, uh, probably to hold up some of that stuff. Uh, you know, maybe like quarter inch steel stock, something like that. And uh, it's a lot of work. You have to prepare for, for doing a butter sculpture. You can't really just do it. You know, you've got to prepare for it. And how long does it typically take you to, um, you know, complete a project from start to finish once you, once you get going? Most of the things I do are around 10 days, something like that. Uh, that's the 10 days of putting butter on. Uh, there would be in maybe another 10 days of building the armatures also. Um, so it's, there's a lot that goes into it. And is uh, it? But that's like the one that was in Florida of the manatee. I did a manatee and a diver. Wow. Uh, that was, uh, that was like 10, 11 days down there doing that. And, uh, butter works really rather quickly. So, uh, right. you can, you know, it, it, it's not good for small sculptures, but it's great for large sculptures, and- uh, because it's, it's so soft, you know, hmm. so. And how many can you? How many butter sculptures do you typically do in a year? We, uh, uh, myself and my wife Marie Pelton, uh, we do about ten to fifteen events, but they're not all butter. We do also do chocolate. We do chocolate. We do cheese. Um, you know, we do many different kinds of uh, foods, but I would say most of them are probably butter. Um, so, so there's about there's about four regular events that I have, and then we we pick up events all the time. Uh, this year we were in California, and we were in Canada, and Florida, of course, and in uh, uh, Pennsylvania and New England. So we we do have to travel to do it. Also, do you think that there's an increased interest in butter sculpture? I'm just wondering because I'm kind of just. You know, I, I grew up in a city, so maybe I have a really small view of this world, but I feel like I've just been reading about it a lot more recently, and this year even. Well, there is. Uh, there's a lot of interest now, and it's just one of those things because it's unusual, and especially like when you go in the South, we're, you know, just in Florida, mm-hmm. and they've never, people never saw butter sculpture before, so they were kind of, whoa, you know, what is this, you know, butter sculpture. Yeah. And just the amount it floors them. They, you know, I mean, I did. I had 500 pounds of sculpture, you know, butter in the sculptures, and uh, it was uh, it was kind of blew them away. They were looking at, wow, look at all that butter. Wow. Well, so that's so. actually that's actually a great a great um, sort of lead in to our next question. So yeah. the the sculpture you just completed at the Pennsylvania Farm Fair, um, that was a huge. It was a uh, we read that it was a thousand pounds, and that it was actually going to be going to power a farm after the festival had concluded. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. They, uh, you know, they try to do stuff with the butter. You know, the butter gets contaminated, of course, when after we use it. And so, uh, you know, all the bacteria that's transmitted through our hands and tools and everything else, we we don't treat it as a food. It's really an art, uh, you know, material for us. And... uh, so they have to get rid of it in some way, and they have to use it in some way, recycle it in some way. And 
in the past, they've been uh, sending it to Penn State. And they used to turn it into biofuel and used to power vehicles. This year, uh, there's a farmer who's taking it, and he's turning it into um, electricity by putting it in a uh, methane digester. So, um, you know, there's all kinds of different ways to, uh, to treat the, the material. Wow. Wow. That is truly amazing. You think about the cycle. The sun goes into the grass, which the cows eat, and they produce milk and cream, which makes the butter, which, you know, could fuel us or in turn fuel fuel a methane digester. Well, thank you so and, much uh, for for taking time to be on the show. Um, unfortunately, sure. um, we have run out of time, but I hope yeah. uh, I hope you'll come back on the show because I feel like we've just hit the tip of the iceberg. And uh, please tell okay. us your website so people can uh, take a look at your work. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. Sure, and uh, we'll be sure to put a link to your website on our site, and uh, we'll talk okay, with you great. soon. We'll be back after a short break. Bye, Jim. Wonderful. Thank you. 1988 senior year at Garby High. all the guys were corny, but the girls were mad fly. Lounging with the tipster, cooling with shop, scoping out the honeys. They know who they are. I was the b-ball playing, fly rhyme saying, fly girl getting. Whenever was I sweating? Cause when it came to honeys, I would go in a stroke until I met my match. Her name was Flo. Yeah, I messed around with the one called Flo. All the troopers round the way used to call her a hoe. But deep down in my heart, I knew that Flo was good to go. Cause I thought it was me, like Belle Biv DeVoe. But little did I know that she was playing with my mind. The only thing I've learned is good girls are hard to find. I feel like heavy D, I need somebody for me. Not someone whose mind is blanket trying to juice me for my banks. Swinging with my main man, lucky behind my back. What type of crap is that? Yo, how's about a smack? Word life, I can't front. Thought I was all that. But now it seems I've met my match. I was a stone cold lover. You couldn't tell me that. Settling down with one girl. Wasn't trying to hear that. I had Tanya, Tamika, Sharon, Karen, Tina, Stacy, Julie, Tracy. Used to love them. Leave them. Skeeze them. Tease them. Find them. Lose them. Also abuse them. My whole attitude was new day, next hunt. And believe it or not, they all got done. Well, here comes Flo with the crazy whip appeal, and I'm all too man, like Alexandra O'Neill. Is this really love? Then again, how would I know? After all this time, trying to be a super hoe. She finally played me, but yo, I'd find another, because I've got the crazy game, and yo, I'm smooth like butter. It's like butter. It's like butter, baby. It's like butter. And we're back on Cutting the Curd. That was such an awesome break song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Smooth like butter. <laughs> um, so Cutting the Curd today is all about butter. And uh, our next guest knows quite a bit about butter and pretty much everything, everything on the else, planet. Yeah. Um, uh, we're very pleased that Harold McGee is on the show. Harold, are you with us? Yes, I am. Hi. 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 Thank you so much for taking the time out to be on the show. Oh, my pleasure. So um, we're actually sitting here in the studio looking at a block of 91% butterfat yeah, butter. A half-eaten block. That's true. <laughs> yeah, we're not just looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, I was wondering if you could enlighten us uh, about, you know, just the basics of what makes what makes a great butter. Uh, well, that, that kind of depends on um, the sort of butter you're making. Um, there's um, sweet cream butter and there's cultured butter, and uh, they, they require different kinds of handling. Uh, so with sweet cream butter, uh, you want the cream to be, you know, really fresh. Uh, and, of course, all cream, no matter what the butter, uh, has to come from really good milk. Uh, 
uh, sweet cream butter, you're you're going to make it as fresh as possible. Cultured butters, uh, you actually let sit around for a while and let bacteria grow in them to help develop flavor. Uh, and so those are two two very different um, ways of making butter, and they have different uh, different requirements. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of making both of those types of butters? Um, uh, I I seem to remember reading that uh, um, it was uh, more common at one point to make cultured butter just because of the logistics uh, of collecting cream. That's right. You're uh, essentially, uh, if you're making uh, cream producing milk on a pretty small scale, you know, just a a few cows, then you may not have enough cream um, at any given time to be worth working into butter, because making butter is a lot of work when you do it by hand. Uh, It takes quite a while, and it it takes some muscle power. Uh, So what a lot of people would do would be to collect cream uh, over a couple of days uh, and then just make cream every other day or something like that. And what that means is that the cream gets a chance to sit around for that length of time. Also, in the old days, cream was produced from milk by letting it rise naturally from the milk, and uh, that takes time. Uh, so the result is that the, the milk and cream are sitting around for a couple of days at coolish but not refrigerator temperatures, and that allows uh, bacteria to grow, and um, uh, people develop the taste for that. I certainly have developed a yes. taste for that. That <laughs> yeah. is so good. Um, so I was wondering if uh, maybe you could tell us, well, do you, do you make butter uh, um, at home often, or do you recommend that home cooks uh, try out making butter? Well, I don't do it often, but I do it every once in a while just because it's so much fun. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, and the results are, are delicious. Um, it's uh, uh, just really fun. I mean, usually when people make butter in the kitchen, it's by accident. You know, they're yeah. trying to whip cream. That's and, happened to me. <laughs> and yeah. something goes wrong, and you end up with these little lumps, and you, uh, you curse your luck. Uh, but... The flip side of that is that those little lumps are the beginnings of, of butter, and it's really fun sometimes just to kind of, you know, intentionally destroy a batch of cream <laughs> by by turning it into butter. <laughs> uh, and when you do that, is there any additional step that you take um, beyond, uh, you know, just whipping it to the point that's that it becomes butter? Do you, do you work it at all or, or knead it in any way, or is it just kind of ready to go just like that? Well, again, it, it kind of depends on what you want to do with it. If you want it to last for more than a day or so, then you really do want to um, uh, wash it before it's um, uh, before you've worked all the butter uh, buttermilk out of the uh, butter fat, um, uh, and then knead it. Maybe add some salt. Um, uh, but if you're just gonna, if you're making it for the pleasure of making it and to have it that day, uh, or in the morning on your toast or <laughs> uh, whatever it is you're having, then you know you don't really have to worry about shelf life. And if you don't have to worry about shelf life, then then I say just enjoy the the fresh flavor and don't don't mess with it. Just taste it all by itself. That's that's some good advice, I think. Probably, yeah. Sounds like a good breakfast. And then um, I was wondering too, you know, for the for the average consumer walking down the the supermarket aisle, what should they be looking for if they want to buy a, a good quality butter? Because you know, now when you walk down the supermarket, especially here in the city, there's probably 
10 different kinds that are marketing themselves as higher quality for whatever reason. What what kind of things can you look for to let you know that it really is a, a better butter? Well, it's really hard to, to say because uh, packages can be so deceiving and language can be so deceiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first thing I would actually look at if, if there is an indication of it is the sell-by date or the manufacturing date because butter is a, it's a perishable commodity and uh, the older it is, the staler it gets. And um, uh, so that's, that's really the first thing. And then um, it, it's a matter of taste. Do you want the, that additional sli- slightly tart, slightly stronger flavor of cultured butter or do you want the pure cream flavor? Um, you can make that distinction. Uh, and then, you know, uh, sadly, I would say probably the, the best indicator is price. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because the people who take real care and are doing it on a, on a relatively small scale uh, so that it's labor-intensive have to charge more for it to, uh, to make it pay. And, and what about you? What's your favorite butter? Do you have a preference, you know, for when you're baking and what you're just going to have at the table or what you like at different times of the year? Uh, actually, what I love to do is just uh, get something different every time and experience the varieties of butter. Um, so, I, I mean, there are, I think, two general approaches to food. One is to decide what you like best and then go for that every time. Uh, and then on the other side, there's the appreciation of the tremendous variability and variety that there are um, among products and then within a product from season to season. And uh, that can be really fun to uh, experience. So I'm, I fall into the second camp. And so I almost never buy the same butter. <laughs> two times in a row. I like that. A butter tasting will be the, the new kind of tasting. <laughs> we, we could arrange that. Yeah. I think we should, in fact. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you're, um, you live out in California. Is that, isn't that correct? Yes. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you have access to such a wonderful array, I'm sure, of fresh dairy products out there. It's true, and and I live in uh, San Francisco, which is just south of uh, Marin County, which is a wonderful dairy area uh, with a a number of uh, really good creameries, and you know the stuff comes right here from there, and uh, so that is that that is a real privilege. So um, that actually um, ties into a question that I had. Um, What do you think are some of the best butter making regions um, in the world, and uh, and and why? Well, um, I guess I would say the, uh, the the places that have been making it for a long time uh, have figured out how to make it really good. Uh, so in France, uh, Normandy, and Brittany, those areas along the northeast northwest uh, coast uh, that have uh, beautiful pastures many months out of the year and where um, a lot a lot of the best butter comes, some of it flavored with sea salt from from those coasts mm. um, and then Ireland um, similar geography and similar history um, and then I would say the uh, in this country the east and west coasts and and the the dairy heartland in Wisconsin uh, at least those are the of the places that come come to mind first yeah 
Yeah. Well, it's funny. And, um, uh, you're talking about France and, uh, um, Sophie and I were actually, we were reading your book on the subway coming over here. And I was astonished to learn that margarine was invented in France. (laughs) Little known secret. (laughs) (laughs) I could not believe it. (laughs) Oh, um, but so what about, uh, butter from other types of milk? I know, um, you know, butter from cow's cream is the one that everyone's most familiar with, but, uh, is it possible to make butter from goat's milk and sheep's milk and other things? Yeah, it is. It's, it's harder because, um, the fat globules for those, uh, for those animals are much, much smaller and therefore they're much harder to kind of trap and, and separate from the rest of the milk. They don't, uh, cream as easily. These days with mechanical separators, uh, centrifuges and things like that, it's, it's easier. Um, and, uh, I actually love that really distinctive flavor of, uh, of of those animals uh but it is rarer because it and more expensive because it's much harder to make I, that's something that i would love to try i've never yeah. i've had goat's milk butter before um and i really enjoyed it but sheep's milk i didn't yeah i would love to i would love to try that um i'm actually we're um sophie and i are reading paul kinstead's new book um called uh cheese and culture which is due to come out in april from chelsea green publishing and um he makes mention in there of uh, sheep's milk butter, um, and I just, yeah, I dream. I dream of the day. One day. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find it. Yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, Well, thank you so much, Harold, for taking yeah. time to be on the show. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you, and I hope, uh, I hope uh, you'll come back and join us for a future episode. Well, pleasure for me, too, and I look forward to doing it sometime in person. <laughs> Great. Excellent. All right. Well, um, thank you again, and stay uh, tuned for our third guest, who's going to be Diane St. Clair, owner of Animal Farm and a professional butter maker. program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery. Cane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.cane5.com. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. Our show today is all about butter, and our third guest is... um, uh, a very esteemed butter maker and farmer, uh, Diane St. Clair of Animal Farm in Vermont. Uh, Diane, are you with us on the line? I am, Anne. Thanks so much for taking time to be on the show. We really uh, appreciate being able to talk with you. Yeah, great. I'm looking forward to it. So um, earlier in the show, we were talking with, uh, well, we talked with Harold McGee about mm-hmm. um, sort of the science of butter and uh, the different styles of butter throughout the ages. Um, and so we were hoping um, that you could tell us a little bit about um, what is your process when you are making butter and why is it different uh, than the way that a lot of other butters are produced? Sure. Well, I'm probably making butter as close to what the farmhouse wife used to make butter as uh, it was made then because that's how everybody used to keep a little pocket money was 
um, when the milk went down the road, you kept a little cream and you made butter and sold it around town. But so basically, what I do is after I milk the cows, um, my milk is cooled, and then I let it sit for um, usually eight to twelve hours, and then I hand skim the cream off. So. That's the first thing that's a little different than a commercial creamery is I'm not using a uh, cream separator. And so what is I'm that process? Hand. Well, and what is that process actually like skimming the cream? Do you really yeah. just mean like with a ladle you're you're scooping it all yes. off the top? <laughs> I'm really out there with a ladle. <laughs> and because the one of the wonderful things about cow's milk, this it, it's much harder to do this with goat's milk, but with cow's milk it will gravi- gravity separate. So all of your heavy cream will rise to the top and basically leave your low-fat and skim milk at the bottom. And so what I'm doing is taking a ladle, literally, and skimming off the cream from the top until I see that I'm starting to hit lighter-colored milk, and I know then I've got all the cream. Okay. And then, yeah, what's next? (laughs) So then I take the cream um, and... After two or three days when I have enough, I pasteurize it. Um, And then I, after I pasteurize, I inoculate that cream with a starter culture, which is my buttermilk culture. And I let that sit for another um, 16 hours. And then I churn the butter the next day. So it's a two-day process. One day I pasteurize and I culture, and the next day I churn. And in a commercial creamery, again, you would churn your cream, get your butter, and so what you have in the churn is your butter and what's left over, which is buttermilk. And now in a commercial setting, what happens is they just flush water through the churn and keep the churn going and basically beat the milk out of the butter because you you don't want the butter to have any milk in it, otherwise it will go bad. But I don't do that. I pour my cream out or my buttermilk out and save that to bottle later, and then I hand wash my butter. I put it on a big marble slab, and I sort of treat it like I'm kneading bread. I just keep folding it over and washing it until all of the buttermilk is out of it. And what do you mean by washing it? Do you literally mean you're just pouring water over the top? Yep, I, I pour water over the top. I fold the butter over, and I, and I lightly press it, and I get more buttermilk, and I keep washing it. So for me to um, make 30 pounds of butter takes me about four hours of churning and hand washing. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Just so uh, listeners have an idea, what's the the size of your herd and um, the the amount of butter that you're producing per week? Right. So I'm currently milking seven Jerseys, Jersey cows, and I produce about 65 to 70 pounds of butter a week. So it's about 10 pounds a day. Wow. That's a... That's a lot of uh, that's a lot of kneading and washing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of hand labor and um, manual labor, yeah, for to get that product. But I think that's why it, it tastes as unique as it does because 
when you eat the butter, you know it was made that week. None of my butter hangs around. It's mm-hmm. not traveling across oceans and being stored for weeks in refrigerators. It's made and then it's gone. And the other thing that's wonderful about it is that it's it's a seasonal product, meaning that, you know, I'm in Vermont, so obviously right now my cows aren't eating grass, but in the spring and the fall during the grass season, my butter looks and tastes one way, and in the winter it looks and tastes a different way, depending on where the cows are grazing and what they're eating. Mm-hmm. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about um, your seasonality? Because I love it. It's a little bit, I, I feel like it's a little bit opposite of, of some of the cheesemakers <laughs> we work with. It is very opposite from a traditional dairy farm. Um, yes, I milk from late August until early June. And um, I don't know if most people know this, but cows um, have a nine-month gestation, and, order, and in order for them to milk, they have to have just had babies. So they have their babies, and they milk for uh, 10 months or something, and then um, you've got to dry them off or stop milking them for the two months before they calve. They sort of need to recharge and put all their energy into their babies. So um, I stopped milking for the summer. And one reason I originally did that was because my plant where I make my butter it wasn't air-conditioned, and it's almost impossible to turn butter when it's 80 degrees out. It just turns to grease. Yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't hold together, right? So, and um, also your butter fat is higher, oddly enough, in the winter when the cows are eating hay. Mm-hmm. That so. makes sense. Well, they're kind of hanging yeah. out inside, not getting so yeah. much yeah. exercise yeah, yeah. and the, all the water yeah. that's lacking. They're eating them. all the yummy dried summer grass hay that we put up for them, so... And so um, you do, you guys do, uh, so that makes sense. So then in the summertime, you're not making butter, but you're making a lot of hay so you can feed the cows right. in the wintertime. Yeah. Right. We're still working and they're grazing and resting and getting ready to have their babies. And August comes and, you know, we have these wonderful late fall grasses with um, lots of clover and, and things. The grass slows down a little, but it's really concentrated and, um, so I, I still get some really lovely grass butter in the fall, too. Wow. Wow. That sounds, uh, I mean, yeah, just Delicious. just talking yeah. about it is making my mouth water. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was wondering, so can you tell us a little bit about um, about where your butter ends up? I know you have a special relationship with a, with a chef, which is pretty unusual. Yes. <laughs> so um, out of those 65 pounds, um, about... 50 of it goes to Thomas Keller and two of his restaurants, Per Se in New York and the French Laundry in Yountville, California. And um, I've had that relationship with him now for 10 years. First, it was with the French Laundry, obviously. And then when he decided to open Per Se, he called me and said, Diane, I'm you know, going to open this fabulous restaurant in New York, it's going to be like the French Laundry, but, you know, not per se like the French Laundry. <laughs> um, that's the name per se. But um, he said, I've got to have your butter there. So do you think you could get two or three more cows? And I said, of course, chef, I can do that. <laughs> and that's what we did. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have that relationship with him and the restaurant. And um, it, it's it's really great. 
That's so cool. And, and I so- have a cow named after him, too. <laughs> that's, that's what I was going to say. That's so amazing. That's like, the, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. If, yeah. you, if you can, you know, back it up and, and, and he's so supportive, you know, you can, you can have a cow named after you. Big honor. <laughs> exactly. And he came up this fall to visit her. So that was a really Aww. fun thing. Um, he got to meet Keller and Keller got to meet Keller. And- <laughs> <laughs> it was Keller Square. That was wonderful. <laughs> That's really, really fun. And so, do you have any plans, uh, um, you know, to expand um, your production any further? Um, you know, if, uh, I don't know if, you know, if uh, if they need, if the restaurants uh, need more butter, or do you plan to just kind of stay the size that you are? Well, I'm always asked by new chefs, different chefs, if I will sell them butter, and I, I think that I probably could expand, but I. You know, I really feel like, and, you know, I could get employees, and so I basically do this by myself. My husband helps me a lot on the farm, but I'm the butter maker and do all the processing and most of the milking. So um, I could hire employees and get bigger, but I feel like the reason that I started doing this was that I, I just love my cows, and I appreciate them as unique animals and I like giving them the time I can give them and I guess I'm a bit of a control freak my you know (laughs) I really want to oversee the production of my product I don't really want anybody else making it and so um the long and the short is that I probably won't get any bigger (laughs) just because I'm sort of at that point now where for me to get bigger means I can't do the things I do I have to give some of that up and I can't decide what to give up. So (laughs) that's so great to know where that line lies for you and just sticking with, you know, the thing that, that makes you happy. I think that's absolutely, that's, that's so cool. Um, well, unfortunately this time always goes by way too fast, but, um, if people want to learn more about animal farm and see beautiful pictures of the cows, do you have a website that people can check out? We do. They should just Google Animal Farm um, in Vermont, and there are pictures of the cows and butter making and the farm. And um, if anyone has questions, they can email me, and I'd be happy to answer them. Very, very cool. Well, thanks again for taking time out to to be on the show, and uh, we hope you'll come back on for a future episode. Great. It was really fun. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Diane. And uh, we'll we'll see everybody next week for another episode of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network.